that you're born an Italian If you want your life to be great See that you're born an Italiano And your life will be great Hey there, Paisani. Welcome back to another episode of the Italian-American Podcast, your weekly dose of Italian-American heritage, history, and hilarity. I'm John Viola with my partner in crime, the notorious P.O.B. Patrick O'Boyle. We are fresh off of a very successful evening last night, kicking off IAFL 2, our our second bite at the apple of the Italian-American Future Leaders Conference, which coincides now annually with Pat's birthday in January. That's how we set it up. Yes, it was not intended, but intended, I guess. And uh, Maybe so. not for you, but for me. Because <laughs> yeah. I hate birthdays, so it's a great way to tackle another year. Nothing better than being at an event that you have thought up in your own mind, so it's your universe unfolded sure. On, sure. on the world. And I have to say, sure. last night was the kickoff call. That event will be January uh, Martin Luther King weekend. And we had an amazing turnout of alumni of the first event who have volunteered to join us and become part of this organization, part of this movement going forward on a more regular basis. And I'm really looking forward to it. I don't know about you, but I think it's going to be a great weekend. Sure. And I'm getting inundated thanks to the momentum out there. I'm getting inundated with requests of how can new people sign up? Yeah, it's really interesting because we tried so hard to be under the radar the first time. And didn't really advertise, didn't really put it out there. But obviously, we've talked about it on the show. We've done episodes with some of the alumni, and we've talked about it everywhere we've went as we've traveled. And we've been getting a lot of inquiries as to how people can participate. And just to clear up for the audience out there, if you or someone you know or love is between the ages of 21 and 35 and really interested in this stuff from a community perspective, if you visit iafuture.org, that's the website for the Italian American Future Leaders, we have spots for 100. It's all expenses paid. They come down to Florida and get to spend a weekend with us talking about the future of the community and their role in it. And uh, I don't know when this episode airs. So it might be live if you go it's on. Just, yeah, it's, it's, a lot a fun, of fun. it's a fun event. Yeah. You always said you wanted it to be where people that are self-identified as active in the community get to meet at an early age and build bonds. There was an interesting question last night that someone posed that said, like, what are they getting out of it as far as learning from it. like what skills are we get if there is it's not that i know. i mean that's somebody else's wheelhouse gina biancardi made an interesting comment and we taped with her on sunday and she said that she asked her father for years how do you make wine and he's like i can't teach you you have to watch me yeah and he goes you learn it's like an apprenticeship mentality yeah and i think leadership is the same way if you have the innate gifts or skills to be a leader they're going to come out and you just have to learn you just have to i mean i don't say even learn it's just you get to learn how, maybe learn is the right word. You get to learn how to use them by watching. Yeah. It's an internship program, basically. Yeah, we definitely do a couple of things over the course of that weekend that approach the sort of traditional, quote unquote, leadership training. But the idea of leadership in the. And whole, you love all that stuff. I do. I like that charts stuff. Charts. Yeah. And <laughs> SWOT analysis. And breakout. What's that analysis? SWOT analysis. Have, and I'm so tuned out. <laughs> He's doing this stuff and I'm on my phone. I might as well be on Mars. Shocking. Yeah. I have absolutely Zippo. Not that, I mean, it's just, it's just not my, I just don't, this chart and that chart and blue and green and well, colors I, we, and we breakout it. groups and fill in the blank things <laughs> and it's too much for me. I, the reason I added is because I used to, I really delved into this stuff when I was at NIAF because I tried to create a yearly leadership retreat there for the board of directors, for some of the more active members and for the staff to do together because my idea was, you know, it's very easy to lead an organization, particularly when you come and go on a temporary basis, right? If, 
you know, staff has to be there full time, but boards don't. So they come in, they pop in for meetings, they read the notes. But it's easy to lead an organization based on your gut or what you suspect, particularly around our community, right? People will say all the time, oh, young people don't want to participate. Well, we've disavowed that whole thing with the turnout that we get. So I always feel if you can emphasize as much kind of quantitative analysis as possible, or if not quantitative analysis, at least a an academic systemic approach to understanding the community. How many people do we lose by now? <laughs> I don't know, but my, How many people have turned I think, off? I think it's really important. So kids we, crying in the car. <laughs> nobody's going to come now. But we, we only lost, we sprinkle goodbye, that in. We lost you now. <laughs> we sprinkle it in. The real goal of it is for people to get to know each other, to network, to make sure that in the future when they're leading the institutions of our community, they've already got relationships. They got to know each other. Yeah, they that's the number one thing. I mean, yeah. that's the benefit of the NIAF Youth Retreat in the late nineties when it was alive and well, was the fact that we all know each other. Yeah. And when you can say you know somebody for 25 years, you really know somebody. Yeah, exactly. You know, you know who you're working with, the good, the bad, the ugly. Yeah. It would be you a know. much different community if the heads of all these major organizations had come up together in kind well, of... Well, they would have killed each other soon. <laughs> this is probably I mean, they would have killed each other. I mean, yeah. it's, not, it's, it's not a community that plays well in a sandbox. No, it doesn't. But it probably, we would have... We uh, what's the word, the herd? Cult. We would have culled the herd much earlier on. I guess so. You see our friends in Australia, the Italian-Australian podcast. Yeah. It seems to be taking off. Yeah, they're doing really well. I mean, I'm really, really happy to... I mean, I haven't gotten any great color on kind of how they're uh, how they're appreciating it, but from what I see from the outside, it looks like it's going really, doing really well. Doing a great job. They should be very proud. Yeah, I am. I'm... And you have plenty of bandwidth. You can listen to them. You can listen to us. You can yeah. listen to Frank. Yeah. You can listen to a different Italian-American podcast every day. Yeah, I mean, look, that's a big part of our... You know, we're... We're now a couple months away from the opening of the studio and the idea being working with the guys at Grown Up Italian and seeding new and different shows. And uh, first and foremost, if you're out there and you have a concept for a show, you have your own show that we don't know about, please send it our way. You can always email us at info at italianpower.com or you can go on the website. You know, we, we really think that there's a lot of bandwidth for more diverse there's room for everybody. Yeah, storytelling. There's and, room yeah, for everybody journalism. at the table. And yeah. everybody brings a different um, a different flavor. You know, it's so, funny you say that, the idea of different kinds of shows, because today's episode, we're going to do another one of these shows that I like to call Paisani of Interest. And oftentimes, they're Pat's Paisani of Interest, because one thing I've always admired about you is you really dig into people's stories, both from a yeah, genealogical perspective. I'll you, take you know, that compliment. Yeah, you, you. You, you're a natural interviewer, even though you kicked and screamed and if you don't know i'll harass you yeah exactly yeah so you till you do know god forbid pat asks you where your family's from in italy and you say you don't know you will know within 15 minutes after that but uh today we go back to this idea of paisani of interest and it's it's another perfect example of kind of a different version of our show in that you know we have a lot of these power hours where it's just us talking about a topic or we have interviews with authors or um names that you might know but pat always brings the individual italian americans that we encounter whose stories you should know, but you might not have another venue to do it. And not only should you know them because of their amazing personal accomplishments and experiences, but also because each of these is something like an oral history that's a window into the Italian-American experience at different times and different circumstances. So today we have a guest with us who, Pat, you've known for quite a while, I think. How I Met Severino is its own episode. Why don't you introduce Severino D'Angelo here? And uh, Should I let out a secret? So, you know, um, I knew Severino for like 10 years and then he popped up on my mother's 23 and me. I cannot believe how many people, you know, pop. I have not had one person I know. 
pop up on my and maybe I just don't dig through enough, but you you're related to all these people you know. I think it's a cosmic thing from the other side. I mean, you could write me off as crazy, but uh-huh. statistically, how else? So, my friendship with Severino started with the Fiesta Morona del Monde because Joy is a town at the foot of the mountain. Do the you mount, want the whole story? The mountain of Novivelia, where the yeah, do you want the, you want yeah. the whole story? I'll give you the whole story. So, it's 1999, maybe, maybe it's 2000. I used to commute to law school with a kid named Joe Amoroso. I had gone to undergrad with. And Joe and I were commuting to school. And at that time, I'm a, see, I'm, I'm considered a very untechnological person now. But there was a time when I was ahead of the curve. <laughs> you were one right? at one point. And I had a, a trio, which was kind of like the... Blackberry trio. Well, this wasn't a Blackberry. It was a... It was the makers of... Well, no, it was a Palm. It was the palm, makers of Palm. Palm, 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 Palm. That's right. That had that's gone right. out that's and right. done yep. their own thing. So I had a... It was basically a... For, for the kids out there, it was a glorified... It was like an electronic telephone book, basically. Right. And you could plug it into your computer with download news articles and stuff like that. So I'm driving. Joe was driving because we used to alternate um, who would drive. And Joe's mother was from a town called Joy Chilento. And we're driving to school. And Joe is telling me how they started this new organization called Sonia, Society Organized for Joyes in North America. And he's like, my mother's involved. And there's this guy Severino. And they're forming a club. And you, you're into all these Italian organizations. You should join. I'm like, Joe, why in the world would I be interested, involved in an organization from a town I have no connection? And so, no, no. And he insisted that I take down Severino's number, the guy who was leading it. So I punched it into my trio at the time. So I, I put it in there. And that was the end of it. Right? So I, I, I put it in there just to shut Joe up on the way to school. <laughs> so that's, say it's 2000. Um, when I started, the, so the Joyes of extreme devotion to Madonna del Monte, because they're on the bottom of the mountain, Mount Gelbison, where the shrine is in Novi Velia. So I guess it was 10, about 2011, when all of a sudden I was starting up the feast for Madonna del Monte, and I needed a base of people to actually come to the Mass. And I wanted to have it at a Holy Face Monastery where they have the picnic grounds. And to make a long story short, I said, how the one group that's organized that I can turn to are the joyes. So I, I take this number at now what had happened is why I bring up the trio is every time I had gone from one trio to the next model trio to when the trio morphed into the iPhone, Severino's number was carried into every phone. So 11 years later, I punch in Severino's name and it comes up and I said, I'm going to cold call this guy. Right? He's going to think I'm a complete wacko nut job. And I call him up and I'm saying, listen, and I, I told him that I had known him through Joe Amoroso. You know, I know that the Joyes have a devotion on the Monde. I'm going to have a, a mass at the monastery. Maybe you could, you know, promote it amongst your people. And Severino's like, well, we have a picnic up there every year. And it's kind of dying and we're looking for something to beef it up. And that's when the marriage happened. Wow. Now, my personal opinion, there were no coincidences. Had Joe not annoyed me that day to put the number in my phone, and I don't know why Joe did it, I would never put the number on the phone. I wouldn't have even known there was a Sonia. I wouldn't have even known there was a Severino. And a beautiful friendship with him and his entire family broke out, yeah. right? So, you know, your, your sister Marie is like an aunt to me. She's done so much for Madonna Mon. She was the, the seamstress. And, but to make a long story short, then in 2017, I'm at an Irish family reunion at the Catskills. And my mother, my mother and I were early adopters for the DNA testing. And... It keeps giving you notifications when you have new relatives. So I manage my mother's account and has a notice that you have new relatives. And this is six years after Severino and I started working together really as a team on Feast for Madonna del Monde. 
And who pops up now? It's a very distant relation. Is Severino D'Angelo. And I said, now my mouth, I'm in the Catskills. I was just bored. I'm out in the woods just checking my email. And I'm hearing this beautiful story night. And I'm like, there's no way this is possible. Because it was another freaky da-na-na-na-na-na-na. Yeah. So I call Severino up. I'm like, Severino, did you take a spitting test for DNA? And he said, yeah. So my thing is, how is it possible in 2000 or 99, whenever it was, I'm in the car with Joe. Um, Joe's telling me, take this guy's number down. I call him 11 years later, and we kind of mesh immediately. He has a picnic that he wants to boost up. I'm looking for a support team. And then 17 years, 18 years later, I find out that we're distantly related. Because we're from two distant towns. It's on my grandfather's side. But very distant in the Chilento. I have no idea how it happened. It's amazing. But that's how I met Severino. But I, the reason I have Severino on is not so that you could have that long, drawn-out story, <laughs> though it's a nice story, is I think that Severino, who immigrates to the United States in 1962, Three. 1963, has one of the most incredible immigration stories. And the reason I bring it up is I think that it's, um, it's like StoryCorps. We have an obligation to record these stories from when we're all gone. Right? Yeah. Sometime in history, someone's going to look back. I mean, think about if we had recorded the first people that went through Ellis Island. Yeah, sure. Or the people who had gone through Castle Garden. You know, I bring up, there was a great uh, story that came up. Um, someone had, it was in a Long Island newspaper, and someone had commented on it that when man had walked on the moon, there was uh, one of the Long Island newspapers went around and said to people, like, what was your impression? Like, you know, it was like the biggest thing that's ever happened. Everyone around the world was watching it. And one woman goes, it's a big deal, but it's nothing as big as it was when they opened the Brooklyn Bridge. Wow. Imagine that. So she talked about how, so I guess a very, very old, now the Brooklyn Bridge is 1883. Yeah. So she's a very, very old woman, you know, I think at the time, whatever, flirting with 100, saying it's a big deal now, but you have no idea what the Brooklyn Bridge was like. <laughs> Can you imagine if someone, because we had the technology in 1969. Yeah, sure. If someone had gone out with a camera and had filmed this woman and said, what was it like the day the Brooklyn Bridge opened? Yeah. And I'm going to let Severino tell his own story, but I think in, in summation, there's two major points that I think that really Severino's life story brings out. A, he left a medieval Italy, which he'll say himself. He was the last generation to live in a culturally medieval Italy, and he came into a 1960s America, yeah. right? The Camelot years. And the second point is that he's had tremendous professional success in life, and that only happened because he came to America. Yeah, Severino, I'm familiar with your story from Pat, and I think it's a great one on a lot of levels. First and foremost, welcome to the show, and thank you for coming out and sharing with us. Thank you for inviting me. We're really happy, happy to get to spend the time together and share your story with the audience. But, you know, before we get to what you did when you got here, let's talk a little bit about your immigration experience, because obviously the majority of Italian-Americans today are descended from those who came with the Great Migration between 18... 1870, but really peaking 1890, ending 1920 and 1924, they changed the law, make it difficult to get in. You're one of the last people to come through when it was still a high quota system, particularly from Southern Italy, right? They, they changed it, I think, back in 67. They finally opened it up a little bit. But, you know, the Italian-American story often overlooks those who came here during those post-war years because so many who were fleeing Italy were forced to go to Canada, Argentina, Australia because you couldn't get in the United States. You were one of the ones who got in. Tell us about that. Well, just a correction. Um, I, I, the 1924, uh, it must be true, 
<laughs> I checked her out just yeah. a couple of days ago, yeah. and my grandfather wanted to come back. He yeah. couldn't make it. But what happened was in 1953, I believe, under Eisenhower, they changed the immigration law where okay. brothers and sisters could call each other, could reunite each oh, other. Oh, that's interesting. Prior to that, they couldn't. Oh, that's interesting. So a lot of people from southern Italy would would uh, emigrate to South America. Mm-hmm. There, they would uh, either acquire or make believe they had uh, the uh, Southern American citizenship, like Uruguay. Right. My own, my own aunt did that. And when she came to America, she should have been sent back because her daughter was born in Italy only a couple of years earlier. Wow, that's so interesting. <laughs> I didn't know any of this. Wow. <laughs> but, then, but then they felt sorry for her. Well, and, and they let Whatever him works. Let him in anyway. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, so anyway, we, it was in 63 that the process got started. We could have come earlier, before 1953, uh, I said, right? So we could have come before 1963, but then the Hungarian Revolution kind of kind of set us back, and we were delayed until 1963. And that's wow. when I, I didn't want to come to America because I want to be a priest in Italy, blah, 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 blah. My father, fortunately, made me because it was a... I would not have done well in Italy. <laughs> you wanted to be a priest in Italy. I want to be a missionary, yeah. <laughs> Crazy. So, so you grew up in the province of Salerno. Yes. Right, like Pat's relatives, like my relatives, for those who are unaware, Salerno, Southern Campania. And it's, you know, people, a lot of people say Naples for all of Campania, but you, you couldn't get much further from the life in Naples than the mountains in the province of Salerno. I mean, it's a much different world than the city of Naples. It, it was, like Pat says, kind of medieval when you left. Right? No, I, actually, that's a very good point. We were very close distance wise. But far away, culture-wise. Yeah. I think culturally, we're more like Calabria yeah. than we are like Salerno or Naples. Yeah, like Basilicata, yeah. Calabria. And there was yeah. not much communication. Uh, as a matter of fact, we didn't have pizza in my hometown. Wow, how about it, that? Because that was invented in Naples. That's crazy. And we knew very little about mozzarella because they're just about 10 miles down the, uh, the road, you know, but uh, I never gotten up there. And indeed, if you went 10 miles away or maybe less, they would speak Ritually a different dialect. Yeah. yeah. That is, Pat says it perfectly, and I think he takes the quote from you from your yeah. prior relationship. It's medieval in the sense that distance is, it, it doesn't matter if it's 10 miles. It's a world away. People don't leave these towns. I, I always talk about my father-in-law immigrating. I think he immigrated 63, 64 from Abruzzo. And uh, he always says, you know, he never saw the ocean until he got to the boat in Naples. I mean, it was just, a, it was, they never left their town. And, Nothing else came to their town. So you were living uh, very much akin to what somebody lived multiple generations before than I think they would be living when you go back maybe 10, 20 years later to a totally different Italy. So did you come by boat or did you come by plane? Uh, we came by boat. By came the, by boat. It, was a, it was a Greek ship, Olympia, and we left uh, July 28, 1963. And we arrived 10 days later in uh, New York City, yeah. New York. And, and yeah. at that point, in the 60s, you weren't processed in Ellis Island anymore, right? No, no. Actually, I should clarify this, too. Yes, I did live in medieval Italy, and I'm proud of that, and I never give it up for anything. It's an experience that you can never relive, you see. Yeah. However, that ended in the mid-50s. In the mid-50s, Italy went through an incredible industrial revolution. Suddenly, in my hometown... Things changed rapidly. We didn't have telephones. We didn't have running water. Wow. Okay. We didn't have any heating in the houses. That's amazing. <laughs> I mean, it was hardly any kind of transportation. It was just, um, I read something on a book recently that somebody born in the year 1000 who woke up uh, 
I woke up uh, in the f- 1500. Eh, maybe uh, still the same world. But waking up today, the book said, he would think it's on a different planet. Yeah. He's in heaven. I said, well, if they woke up in my hometown in 1948, it was, it's about the same. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I, I say that all the time. You know, one of the things I love about this show is like, and I think about this even in America. If you said to my grandfather, who was born in 1920, the early part of my life, before I got to kind of like high school, right? No internet in that. And I mean, the, the internet existed, but we didn't know about it. No cell phones, unless it was one of those brick ones that, you know, uh, executives carried. My grandfather would have a, a lot more in common with my childhood than my own kids will. Like my childhood will be a lot closer to my grandfather's and even my great grandparents than my kid's childhood will be to mine because it's just a different world. I watched my daughter at two years old on the iPad coloring and you know she knows where the buttons are i mean it's it's a fundamentally different world so the world has changed but italy in particular especially the south has changed just yes like a different planet yes. yeah and the world is changing i tell you if you are alive 50 years from now you won't recognize it anymore with the automation taking yeah. place yeah it's unbelievable really and so you came over you landed where did you guys go uh we landed uh, in new york city of course our relatives were already here. They took us to Jersey City. Jersey City. We lived on Pierce Avenue. With, uh, with my uncle at a house, we rented from him the upper floor. And that was uh, that was the beginning. Is that near your neighborhood, Pat? Yeah, they were all downtown. So that's still... That's well, sort of, that, all the Salerno people... Um, no, no, we, we lived... Uh, yes, a lot of Jews lived downtown. Uh, near, were you in the Heights? Along Newark Avenue. We were on the uh, close to Union City. Yeah, the Heights. The, the Downtown through Journal Square in the Heights were all Salernitana people. And then as you went to Marion, there were more people from Caserta and Benevento. That's amazing. But they had had, that area had had people from Salerno coming from the 1870s. Wow. So at that time they were, and, and they did, Jersey City had them into the 1990s, a much, a much smaller population immigrating. But at that time there were 90 years of people coming from that part of the Trento into Jersey City. When did they do that article about Jersey City? 1976. 1976. 76. Yeah. And that what it's called the village or something like that? The village. It was an article um it was an article about saving the Italian, the original Italian little Italy, if you want to call it Jersey City downtown. And it's funny because they do, you know, and people worked very hard to try to preserve it, but like 90% of the businesses that were in that article, I think it was the Daily News that had it. Yeah, something like that, yeah. Um they were all gone by 1980. Wow. They were just wiped out. Yeah, I don't think people, you know, you talked about when you had the parade a couple weeks ago. It's like people know that there was an Italian community in Jersey City, but there's no With physical. With the Lenny Lenape Indians. Yeah, I mean, no they were there proof. before us, but there's no physical proof of it. Yeah, it's amazing. And the Italians in Jersey City is, is the same thing. But Severino, let me ask you something. What were your first impressions when you came to America and you went to Jersey City? First impression? How big those cars were. Wow. <laughs> they were all over the place. Yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> You, we couldn't find a parking spot around the block. Wow. And we were used to seeing, if we saw many cars, were the 500s and 600s. The Fiats. Yeah, Fiats, yeah. yeah. You could pick those up with two people. You oh, yes. Carry Pe- those cars. And, and a lot of time, time people play games on their friends. They lift the back of the car up, and the car wouldn't go anywhere. Wow, that's amazing. <laughs> this is a different world. This season, gather together and connect to Italy with Mediaset Italia. After holiday shopping or the big meal, turn on the TV and catch the latest and greatest from Italy's top channels, Canale 5, Italia 1, and Rete 4 on Mediaset Italia, including a new season of the can't-miss talent show Amici. 
brand new current events program, E Sempre Carta Bianca with Bianca Berlinger, new episodes of the quiz show Caduta Libera with everyone's favorite host, Jerry Scotti, plus brand new dramas and holiday specials. There's so much to be thankful for in Media Set Italia, so call your local television provider today and ask for the channel. Why don't you tell us what was life like in Joy growing up in the late 40s, early 50s? What was your life like? Good question. Um, my life was good because, fortunately, my father was a great provider. He was really, he, he didn't want to be, he grew up as a peasant, but he, he decided that after World War II, he was not going to be a peasant anymore. So he was a photographer, was an electrician, he was an olive grinder operator. Yeah. He opened a, a wine store and then he turned it into an Italian bar and it was Salumeria. And voila, I mean, he, we lived well. Basically, we we already had enough to eat. That was that was it. So, and in those years, having enough to eat meant living well. Yeah, I thought so. Yeah. In fact, being wealthy in Italy in those years means having a basement full of uh, salami. You yeah, know, full of uh, storage provisions. Food. Yeah, provisions like grains, uh, olive oil, wine, of course, <laughs> and uh, yeah, anything that you once you got enough food in the basement. You were, you were set. That, you know, that's an interesting point. Pat always talks about this. And, you know, we, we circle around the ideas of Italy is a very class-based system, particularly the South, right? Even though the, the Southern monarchy fell in 1860 and the Italian unified monarchy fell in 1946, you still had the residual class distinctions of people born into a nobility and people not, even if there was a small middle class. So the idea that wealth is in food and provisions, it speaks to a lot of times we talk on the show about this Italian-American idea of abundance and overfeeding and big plates. And there's a sociology behind that in the idea that you have a people, an agrarian people, whose really only access, the only, the only hope of a concept of wealth they could even think to achieve, because you can't become a noble, was to have enough food to have extra. And so when you come to this country and you do have enough food, there's this great sense of wealth and abundance and the idea to share it and put it out there. And have people leave your table with like leftovers is is a sign of real accomplishment, right? Food is because mm -hmm. so many people leaving even into the fifties didn't have access to food. It's amazing to think about. I think one important point that I would like to make that in Italy at that time, not anymore, I don't think, being wealth was not important. Yeah, you wanted to be important to be important. And the best example I can think of, you remember the story of the Count of Monte Cristo. Well, he was not born in nobility, yeah. but he was an incredible guy, yeah. and they wouldn't accept him. Yeah. So in Italy, you want to be part, of, you want to move up if you could. Yeah. Socially. Would, yeah. Not socially. economically, but yeah, socially. Yeah, and when I read once or twice, I don't know how many times, that in America, you know, titles don't mean anything. You, you, money means everything. So what kind of silly system is that? Yeah. You know, don't you want to be important? Yeah. Somebody said that to me the other day. We were somewhere for Italian Heritage Month, and we were talking about something came up about entrepreneurship. And somebody from Italy said to me, today, you know, even in a globalized world, he said, you know, in America, if you have enough money, you can buy anything. You can buy access. You can buy power. You can buy health care. But he said, in Italy, it's still not the case. You still have to, you know, you want to have money because you want things in a global world. But you still have to build that base of connectivity, raccomandat, and, and, and access to things. And it's still that kind of society. And it, it really stuck with me in the conversation because, you know, that's a vestige of this medieval 
class-based idea that in Italy you can have a lot of money and it still doesn't give you access to power or influence or the government or banking, whatever. You still may be behind the line of the guy who doesn't have money but has a cousin who works in the bank or works in the embassy, whatever it is. And uh, I think that's very telling of, of this Italy. Yeah, in, my, in my hometown, we basically had uh, most people and then I did Don and the Donuts. The Don and the Donuts came down. You always call me the first name. And so Don and Dona was a noble title for those. A noble title for the upper class. And it came from the Latin Dominus and Domina. So over the centuries, Dominus and Domina became Don and Dona. It went through the the Spanish. Through the Spanish, Spanish, yeah. Yeah, the Spanish Dom is hard to say. So they say Dom became Dom, meaning Domino, became Don, D-O-N. And they were the noble families in these towns. Noble family. And a lot of them were actually no wealthier than the rest of us. Actually, some of them were pretty poor. Yeah. Because they lost their, their influence. And, uh, but, but, but to me, it bothered me a great deal. Why do these people, I mean, personally, other people of uh, my age and my status didn't care, you know, just lived along. But I was kind of obsessed. Why, why are they more important than I am? So I, you had to greet them, Don Alvira, Don. Yeah, you yeah. You had to say hello to but them of first course. and all these. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But of course, I just said, well, I'm just as smart as they are. Why the difference? But it bothered me. Not that I want to be one of them. Right. Not at all. I just wanted to be all on a, on a level field. Yeah. And that was one of the things I loved about America. We don't have uh, titles. So we don't have, you don't have to call people by uh, their last name. First name is perfectly fine. I, I really like that system. Yeah. Well, think about the, even even today in Italian, you know, you have the formal lay versus the informal two. Oh, and I couldn't How st- do you remember who to say what? It's it's confusing. When when uh, I meet an, an Italian, immediately want to address me with the lay, the voice. Please drop it, you yeah. know. And I, my first name is really nice. I love Severino. <laughs> yeah. And I, one thing about me is too when they call me Signor Ingegnere. <laughs> the oh, titles I, are the greatest. Oh, I right. hate, I hate that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But here's an interesting thing. There was uh, a friend of mine who just passed, Giovanni Bianco. Don Giovanni Bianco, I asked him, what happened? Why suddenly these titles have gone away? With World War II, it all went away. Yeah. He said that the American influence, the Americans came to southern Italy during World War II, and they were very informal, and everybody started copying them. That's what he said. I, yeah, it makes I, sense. I wouldn't remember because I was not uh, really, I was alive, but I wasn't remembering anything during World War II. I was born in uh, 1944. Yeah. Why don't you tell us the story? About how your father came home from the war. I think it's a great story. <laughs> well, he was a very shrewd man, and you never fool him. So I don't know how he managed, but in Italy, in order to get anywhere, you have to cheat. Yeah. yeah in fact, to, to this day, we say, oh, well, we will follow rules only when everything else has failed. Yeah, know? exactly. Well, he was uh, fighting in Albania against Greece. Water wasn't going well. 1943, I think, was pretty well known everywhere in Germany as well as in Italy that the water was lost. Yeah, he didn't want to have any part of it anymore. So um, somehow he communicated with to to my mother and his and uh, in a letter your sister said he had like a coded he had a coded message in one of the letters that went home. He must have because uh, the uh, the Italian army censored. The letters, they would have known. They would not have been happy. But somehow, my mother got the message that she had to send a telegram to the uh, high command. The telegram had to say that his mother was uh, dying and had to be signed by the uh, town doctor and the town police chief, Limare Shallo. Wow. Yeah. So the, uh, the doctor was willing to do it, 
But the Marishallo, you know, being a, a government official, was yeah. very reluctant. But it took a lot of bribing. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and eventually, what I understand, what Kumfani convinced them to sign this telegram, it was the fact that uh, she went to him and says, you know, we all know the, the war is lost. Why do you want me to lose my husband? They just got married before, wow. the, before he was drafted, you know. And that's how he, he, he succumbed, signed. And he came home around June 1943, and I'm proof of it because I'm the <laughs> firstborn after <laughs> right, the return. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I have an older sister who was born uh, while he was away. Right. He has, she has a great story about that, too. But here's the more interesting thing. He, was a, he probably only had a two-week leave, yeah. so he had to go back, yeah. but he wasn't. Yeah. Yeah. So the cops were approaching him. He said, hey, you have to go back to the front, and he wouldn't go. Finally, one day... They said, listen, you have no choice. You either go or we arrest you. So he put his uniform on. He walked to the train station. It was about uh, 10 miles away. And he got there, ready to go on a train. He had the train to the station chief. He said, where's my train? I said, you crazy? You're not going anywhere today. Why not? <laughs> I don't care. Sign here. Yeah. So he very happy that he had been, uh, the train wasn't there. He started walking back home. On the way home along the highway, the Germans uh, in, their, in their vehicles were driving north, and they were menacing at him. They were not being very friendly at all. I said, what's the matter? These are my friends. You know, we were fighting together in, uh, in, uh, in Greece. So when he got home, he found out that the war was over. Yeah. It, the, the it Mussolini was, had been overthrown? And... No, it was, uh, no, it, it, Mussolini had been thrown before then. Oh, oh right. So. And the, I think the Italian had surrendered yeah. before then. But didn't make it public until 1943, September 8th. Right. So that's why I know that must have been September 8th. That's amazing. Yeah. Imagine that. Yeah. You're, yeah. You're, you're on your way to the train to go back to this losing war. He and picked the right the, day. He did. <laughs> Thank God. That's God. God's fingerprints on everything, right? Unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. And, and so you really are born into the post-war world. You come here to America in, as Pat says, the Camelot era, really the... It's 1963. You got here before Kennedy was assassinated. He got assassinated the year. Yeah. yeah. Where were you when Kennedy was assassinated? I was visiting my uncle, and I don't understand a word of English. And he said, they killed the president. It's no, impossible. Wow, yeah. yeah. Well, listen to the radio. Listen to the radio. Well, how do I know what the radio says? You know? Wow. Yeah. And so tell us a little bit, because I do want to get to your career, because it's also really fascinating. But give us a, a, a little insight into what you found of Italian America in 1963 to, you know, in the mid to late sixties, because in many ways that's the sort of height of the Italian American experience in terms of our influence on the grander culture. What was Italian America like versus Italy versus how was it different from the medieval Italy that you left? Italian American. I thought if you want to my, my honest answer that I found myself, I'm not in Italy. I'm not in America. It's this crazy, American, uh, Italian-American culture. They don't speak English. They don't speak Italian. There's someone it's a crazy yeah, language. It's true. Yeah. It's, it's <laughs> kind of the last period where it was its own, really its own thing. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. So I had to decide, am I going to be an American or an Italian? Well, maybe Italians are somehow, I don't know, they don't like each other very much. I don't know. We, there are some culture, they like to stick to their culture, yeah. like the uh, South Americans. I live in California. Whenever there is some um, um, Mexican descendants, they don't always speak Spanish. Uh, not, not us, not Italians. 
later we don't. We kind of like, so I, 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 I want to be an American. I don't want to be an Italian anymore. I mean, I want, oh, by the way, I'm proud Italian. Sure. I just want to be an Italian American. I'm, right. In America, I'm going to be act like America, although every time I meet somebody new and different, always I'm very proud to announce I'm Italian. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, sure. Yeah. yeah. And, but in Italy, if they call me American, I'm, uh, I, I, I put a stop to that. Wow, I'm, so uh, interesting. Because I am Italian. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. But if I live in America, I don't live like the Americans. I didn't want to have in this uh, limbo culture. Yeah, limbo so, culture. That's yeah. very interesting. That's kind of what it was for a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. Not fully American, not fully Italian, you know, keeping in their own neighborhoods. Hello, everyone. I have the distinct pleasure today to talk to you about a project, a mission that I am very much in love with, and that is the Anchors Rum Mixer. Now, I have Carly Reed on with me today. Carly, did I say that right? You did. I am madly in love with this machine. I throw in sifted flour, and that machine goes for 15 minutes. It can mix any kind of flour I have thrown in there. It comes out like the most perfectly kneaded bread, but Carly has the insight on the mechanics of why it works. She can tell you why you should buy it off of Pleasant Hill Grain. So with that, Carly, I'm turning the microphone over to you. It is an investment into your family, into your health, into your well-being from on a day-to-day basis. Our company has been in business for 25 years, and in that time, we've maintained a reputation for high-quality product offerings and excellence in customer service. So now you heard from Carly. You're not happy with the mixer. I will eat the mixer publicly. Can I do that? You can try. Why, why am I offering that? Because I know it's not going to happen. And with that, I'm done. For anyone who wants to learn more about the machine or get in touch with us directly, you can visit PleasantHillGrain.com. Let me ask you, what was your education like in Italy growing up? Horrible. Terrible. I mean, I, I would have done terribly if I stayed in Italy. Italian schools, to me, didn't work for me. There was too much memorization. I, I, I don't have a good memory. In fact, I probably I even have uh, a learning disability when it comes to languages and stuff like that. But you became an engineer here. Fortunately, fortunately to me, math and science and physics are intuitively obvious. Yeah. And it's not much to read. Wow, that's wild. You know, you, I, I remember spending a whole hour on one page. Yeah. yeah but in Italy, you were learning Greek and Latin. And no, literally, they want me to memorize poems. I had to learn French that I couldn't stand. I, have a, I was even having nightmares. You yeah. Know? And, and it wouldn't have worked. Now, the problem with the Italian schools was the fact that uh, until the university... The classes are like grade school in America. So you have the first grade, they're all together. The second, all together. All the kids stay together. Now here, when you get to the, the uh, sixth grade, they're beginning to split up. Yeah. The teachers stay in the class, and the kids move around. Not in Italy. Now, the problem with the Italian system is that if you say from one subject, then you have to repeat the whole year. Wow. Because you can't just say, okay, I... I think it was something else. And that was the schooling that you went through. That was the That was the system. In fact, in Italy, I started on a technical high school. I did two years. I did very well. In fact, I was told, listen, kid, you really don't belong here, they said to me. You really should go a little higher up because I, well, he said, besides, he said, you live in Leonardo Sauter. <laughs> it was uh, it was called electrotechnica. I was supposed to that's radio technology back. Yeah. Uh, I worked with tubes, believe it or not. Wow. Yeah. So they sent me to a different school, and they I, I went. My father was very very nice to send me to the other school, but I had to start from ground zero. Wow. In America, would they would have said, okay, you've studied this, you've done this, you've done this, so you could not only have to do repeat that classes anymore. Right. But in Italy, had to. Wow. And that was uh, helped me a great deal in America. When I came here, they took all my Italian records, 
they translated more in English. I got credit for everything. Wow. I had to learn English because I never had it. American history and who, what else, you know. And they gave me a diploma. Well, folks, I hope you guys have been enjoying this episode and conversation as much as we have. And, of course, as usual, Pat was right. This is a two-part episode, if there's ever been one. Severino D'Angelo has a beautiful story, uh, a wonderful way of telling it, and hopefully you've enjoyed his journey here to America and his comparison between what he says, of course, is medieval Italy and the life he left behind. But in part two, this conversation, I think, only gets better. We're going to talk about his incredible journey here in the United States, how being drafted into the U.S. military actually saved his life, and what he went on to do with that life, including creating patents for stuff that I think each of us interacts with every day and probably doesn't realize uh, an Italian-American like Severino is at the root of the technology behind it. So it's going to be an amazing episode in part two. We hope you'll come back. Hope you've enjoyed this incredible paisan of interest, Severino D'Angelo, our friend, Pat's cousin, and hopefully now a story that uh, you appreciate as well. If you have anybody out there in your life that you think we should know about, send them our way, info at italianpower.com, or find us on social media. We love to find these stories, and hopefully some of you or your loved ones are, are potentially our next paisan of interest. So thanks for listening, and we'll see you back here for part two next week. See that you're born in Italian. Da, 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 da. Your life to da, be great. Da, 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 da. See that you're born in Italian. See that you're born in Italian.